Good evening. Hello. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. I don't get to say good evening to you very often. Are you still awake? No. Ready to get on with your evening activities? I hope you're all doing very well. I did think about doing a candlelight service, and then I thought about you all, and I thought I can't trust you with fire, can I? I don't think that'd be a very good idea. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm glad you chose to come to the second service because you'd had a hard time finding a seat in the first one. We packed this place out, and since the COVID situation has started, we haven't seen that. So just appreciate that. Glad you chose to join us this evening. Um, If you are a guest with us, we have been talking in recent weeks uh, out of Romans chapter 15, verse 13. But before I dive into the scripture this evening, I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you'd be with, with all of us right now. Lord, as we look at your word, as we talk about what you did for us and the significance of it and the truths of your scripture, Father, I pray that as we read your word, it would go out and work in all of our hearts. God, I pray that your power would be moving through each of us, drawing us closer to your truth of who you are, your character, your nature, and who you are for us, Lord. God, we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we have been talking in recent weeks, and it's appropriate in the Christmas season that we would be discussing the idea of hope, and we've been in the middle of a series that we'll wrap up tonight called Overflowing Hope, and it comes from Romans chapter 15, verse 13 is our anchor scripture, and it says this, may the God of hope, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Christmas is known often as a season of hope. We use words like peace and joy on a regular basis when we're discussing this season. Uh, Even, you know, we looked at some statistics in recent weeks that said only about 50% of Americans believe that Christmas is a religious holiday. And yet, even beyond that 50%, many would talk about hope and joy and peace in this season. And why? Why is that such a key component of Christmas? Why is it, uh, where where does that ideal come from? Of course, those of us that are Christians that believe in Christ, we believe that it began all those years ago, 2,000 years ago. When Christ came to the earth, you've heard the saying, Jesus is the reason for the season, right? See it on cards and signs and bumper stickers and everything else. And when we stop and we consider, why is this about hope? Why is it about joy? What does all that come from? It stems from that story all those years ago where hope came into the world in a significant way. It's not cliche, that say, you know, it is, and people would say that it is, but it's not so much cliche as it is just matter of fact. Jesus is the reason that we celebrate this season, and why those characteristics of hope and peace and joy are attached to the idea. It's a great time of the year to just remind ourselves of that truth. Why is that true? What do we believe about it? That we have hope. Because of what he has done. That this passage of scripture, that the God of hope could fill us with joy and peace despite all the circumstances that we find ourselves in life. And the journey is hard for all of us in different ways. 
And yet in the midst of that, we can have joy and we can have peace. And there's one reason why. Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 2. We looked at this a bit last week if you were here with us on Sunday. But I want to look at it again because we sing about it every Christmas. Uh, Maybe you're not as familiar with why some of those lyrics and those songs are what they are. But there's a story on the... When Jesus was born, uh, and it begins in Luke chapter 2, verse 8 is where I want to pick up. It says, And there were shepherds living in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flock at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Makes you wonder what the presence of an angel must be like to appear before you like that. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those who, on whom his favor rests. Well, there's some of those key words that we've been talking about in that passage. I bring you good news that will cause great joy. I don't know if I've been through a year in my life where I recognize that the world could use some great joy. A hope that overflows, as Paul taught us in Romans. And at the end, peace on earth. Where does this come from? How can we know this peace? How can we know this joy? How can we know this hope? How could I have that for my life, given my circumstances, given all the decisions I've ever made in my life? How can I have these things? How is that possible, looking around me at everything that's going on? How are these things even accessible? Well, it begins... With this story, the angel himself said, there will be joy and there will be peace because the Messiah, or Savior, the Lord, he is both our Messiah, our Rescuer, and our Lord. And because of that, we have access to joy and peace. If we want that kind of hope, if we want those overflowing things, then we have to know this good news that the angel was talking about. What was the angel talking about? Why was this such good news that this child was born in Bethlehem? In his devotional book, which I've grown very fond of recently, uh, called My Utmost for His Highest by Oswald Chambers. Uh, I can't remember the years it was originally written. I want to say the 1930s, maybe it was the 40s. Uh, His December 25th devotional has this short paragraph as a part of it, and I want to read it to you now. Jesus Christ was born into this world, not from it. He did not emerge out of history. He came into history from the outside. Jesus Christ is not the best human being the human race can boast of. He is a being for whom the human race can take no credit at all. He's not man becoming God. He's God incarnate. God coming into human flesh from outside it. 
His life is the highest and the holiest, entering through the most humble of doors. Our Lord's birth was an advent, the appearance of God in human form. God saw fit to become one of us. He saw it necessary. It was part of his strategy and his plan. And this particular moment in time, God becomes flesh. John, in his introduction to his gospel, John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. He became flesh. He dwelt among us. They witnessed his glory. He's full of grace and truth. Again, two things. Just like Messiah and Lord. Both Savior and King. Being one of us and yet over us. In the same way, it can be hard for us to balance grace and truth. And yet Jesus is the the illustration to us. The example That they can coincide side by side. Why did God do this? Why is it such good news? Why is it hopeful? Why is there peace? Why would God do something like this for mankind? I think if you've heard many arguments, um, rhetoric in the world, maybe yourself, you've wrestled with these things. Like, God's not good, he doesn't love me, he's, he's an angry authoritarian, some edge of the universe, maybe absent from my life, maybe not involved, doesn't care about human affairs, how could he, look at the mess we live in, those kinds of things. And yet the scripture teaches us otherwise. In John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The very first phrase here, for God so loved the world. We talk about this frequently on Sundays. When we question ourselves, what is the motive of God? We could have filled in this, God so loved the world with many other things, and some of us do in our mentality sometimes. I do sometimes when I'm struggling. It says, for God so loved the world. It could say, for God got so sick and tired of the world. For God got frustrated with man. God saw that we weren't going to save ourselves. God said we weren't going to be good enough. We could. Our minds do that. We plug that in there all the time. And we think maybe that's what's motivated God. But Jesus himself told us that the motive of God to send his son was love. God is motivated in love for his people. He is just and he is loving. He is both. And he balances them both. And his motive for us is love. He loves his people. What does it mean to love? He gives them preference. He prefers them. For God so loved the world. So why would God do this? Because he loves the world. That he gave his only son. What is God's response to love? How does he exemplify that? How does he demonstrate it for us? He gives. We give gifts at Christmas, you know. (laughs) That's part of what we do. But he gave. Out of his love, he gave his son. He gifted us with something. That whoever believes in him 
should not perish but have eternal life. We also, in our minds and in our little arguments and debates and our struggles with our own soul that we have with ourselves, we put other things in there instead. Things like that whoever goes to church enough, that whoever does good enough, whoever's generous enough, whoever gives more money, whoever gives more time. We wrestle with this idea of, I can't be good enough for God. You are correct, you can't. And that isn't what he's asking of you. That's not how he's challenged us. Yes, we want to continue to come in obedience and alignment with God, but that isn't the thing that determines our ultimate status with God. He has loved us so much that he's given us a gift that all we must do is accept it and believe and eternal life is ours. And that, again, brings us to the predicament of mankind. We're always wrestling. You know, death is so uncomfortable for us. And we wonder things like, what happens after this? Am I going to face a accounting for my life? Will I stand before God someday like some people have said? And the scripture indicates that that is true. We will give an account for our lives. But Jesus has stepped in because as a gift that as we accept his sacrifice, our sins are forgiven. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus in John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, hears what? His word. What is our source? His word. When that gospel, when that good news, when that understanding of the character of God comes to us, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Again, this idea, this great gift that God could have demanded such a high bounty for, if you will. Instead, he gives freely to those who would believe and simply believe his word what he's brought to us. He does not come into judgment, but he passes from death to life. So even if my track record isn't that great, and I've made mistakes, and listen, this is, this is no excuse for us to just go out and do whatever we want. That's a whole other conversation. We do want to be in obedience. We want to obey God. But we've got to get the right order in our minds about what comes first. Our work, the things we do for God, is a result of our loving relationship with him not our effort to get ourselves into heaven. That is a gift that God has given. Sometimes it is hard to believe, isn't it? And yet that's all he asks of us. Believe in it. Believe in it. You will pass through judgment. You will pass from death to life. Death feels so wrong, and it is. Chances are this holiday season you're struggling with the loss of a loved one. Many people are. You know, we miss people. We remember. We have memories of days gone by and those we love and those who are important to us. And, and we grieve because death is awful. And it doesn't feel right. And even though we argue it's the circle of life and it's the nature of things, I want to tell you that in the beginning that was not so. Death was not natural to man. Death is a result of sin in the earth. It's not as if you could live sinless and not die now. None of us can do that. But death is a consequence of man's choice to rebel against God. And now it's in our DNA. Now it is part of our journey. And yet God has provided us a way to be forgiven that when we die, we will receive new bodies someday and be in glory with him. God delivers us from death. In fact, the scripture teaches us that the last enemy to be destroyed 
will be death. And we all could say amen and rejoice at something like that. This also reminds me of, you know, when we're talking about earning it, I think of words like merit and favor. Merit would be the idea that you could earn something by meritorious works. Merits, if you will. Earn merits. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We, con- we contrast these two words, wages and gift. Romans chapter, chapter 6, verse 23. There we go. Wages and gift. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Some of you probably had to work today, probably most of you. And you go to work and you put in your time and you produce something and your boss owes you a wage. It's an agreement that you have. In fact, if he doesn't pay you, he could get in serious trouble, right? It's something owed to you. And the wages of our lifestyle and our sin has produced death in us and all mankind. But God's gift is eternal life. It's not a wage. It isn't something he owes you. It isn't something you can earn or be good enough for. It's so amazing that the scripture repeats this over and over and over, and yet we struggle and struggle and struggle to really lay hold that this is how it works. But it is. Merit is the quality of being particularly good or worthy, especially so as to deserve praise or reward. And so we want to, be, we want to have so much merit before God. We want to have done so many things right, and as long as my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, I'll be good. But it doesn't work that way. You, we are all utterly sinful. We won't outweigh the scales with our meritorious works. It doesn't work that way. To deserve or to be worthy of something, especially reward or punishment or attention. Favor, on the other hand, is an act of kindness beyond what is due or usual. To give unfair preferential treatment to. You ever been in a situation where you feel like someone's getting unfavorable or unfair, favorable treatment from somebody? One of your, maybe a boss, something like that. You're like, that's not fair. They're, they're favoring that. Or when you were a kid, you were just sure your parents were favoring one of your siblings over you. We call that favor. It's undeserved. It's not warranted. Okay, let's cut to the Christmas talk here. We do, we do naughty and nice, don't we? How many of you are on the naughty list this year? A few of you are honest. That's good. The rest of you are lying. <laughs> we do naughty and nice at Christmas, and the parents have manipulated the situation to try and get their kids to behave. You better be nice. Santa Claus will bring you a present. But if you're naughty, he won't. But that's not how it works with Jesus. There isn't a naughty or nice list. We're all on the naughty list, and he's going to go ahead and cut us a break. He's going to do us a favor. He's going to show his favor to us. We don't, we don't deserve it. We can't earn it. If we're, we have this mentality in every area of life, and it's true in a lot of our lives. We want to do the right thing. We want to be integral in our work. We want to tell the truth. We want to be honest with our money. We want to be generous. We want to work hard. All those good things that are meritorious, they do, we do reap benefits because of those things, and they're important. But oftentimes that translates into our relationship with God. 
And it doesn't necessarily work because we can't quite measure up to his immense perfection. When we see the opposite happening, when we see situations where people are done a favor or treated well when they didn't deserve it, we think that's unjust. Someone that got a raise, someone that received a gift. If your brother got a better gift than you, that kind of thing. We don't think it's fair. We recognize it as not being just. Justice hasn't been served. And yet justice hasn't been served for you and I either because God has shown favor to us. When we deserved punishment and death, he shows favor to us. He's given us a gift unjustly. We can't justify the fact that God has treated us so well. It's amazing to think about and hard to get our head around. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so no one may boast. By grace you have been saved through faith. I don't know if you're like me, those arguments immediately come up in your mind. Like, does that mean I don't have to do anything? Well, that depends on... We can't get the cart before the horse here. Why do we work for God? Why would we do good things? Why would we honor God with our lives? Because he's already done this for us. Not because we're going to earn it, or we're going to justify the fact that we did it, or we're somehow going to pay him back for that. We do it because we love God, and because his ways are good and right and healthy for us and the world around us. God is the best gift giver. And he also asks us to give as well. Not out of a sense of earning merit, but out of a sincere desire to love one another and to love him and to honor him. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I can look around this room and see varied grace, varied gifts. Every one of us brings something to the family of God to benefit each other. Whether it be very, very small and you might think it insignificant or it be very huge, who knows? God has things in you that he wants to use to serve others. He's called you to give of yourself. Give of who you are. Give of what he's blessed you with to serve those around you because he did the same for you. Give and it will be given to you. Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. We often think of this passage when we're talking about generosity. But generosity covers all of who we are. Not just material things, but our time, our talents, our abilities, our spiritual gifting, all those kinds of things. If we're generous in those things, God continues to reciprocate back to us and take care of us. This is a promise of blessing for generosity in the scripture. God has called you to be a giver like him. There's a story in Luke. Most of us would know this parable. For those of you that don't, I don't have time to go into all of it tonight. 
But it's the story of the Good Samaritan. There's a ministry here in town called Good Samaritan Ministries, right? They've got the thrift store down off Montana. Why is it called Good Samaritan Ministries? Because of this parable. And in this parable, Jesus has just instructed these guys, love your neighbor as yourself. And one of them kind of wants to test Jesus and says, who's my neighbor? And Jesus replies with a parable, and he tells a story. And the story is about a man who gets robbed and beaten and left by the side of the road for dead. And three people walk by him. The first one is a religious man, important man. The second one is a religious man, an important man. And the third one is a Samaritan. And to the Jews, back when Jesus was telling this story, a Samaritan would not have been respected. The people of Samaria were not respected. The third one to go by is a Samaritan. And the first two guys ignored the man that had been beaten and robbed. But the third man stops, and he takes care of him, and he takes him to an inn, and he binds his wounds, and he pays for him to stay there for a while. And he says, if it costs more than this, I will come back and pay you. He was so generous with this beaten, robbed man by the side of the road. And then Jesus says this, who do you think was his neighbor? And the man answers, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Jesus tells us the story, and he walked it out in his life. He demonstrated it for us, showing us such mercy that he would lay down his life on our behalf when he didn't have to, and we didn't deserve it. And he, and he instructs us, be like this Samaritan. Give like he gave of yourself, of all of who you are. Be generous in the whole of who you are. The one who had mercy is the one who was the neighbor. John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus says this, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. We lay down our lives in so many ways on behalf of others to serve them, to love them, to give them the benefit of the doubt, to walk with them through difficult times, or in Jesus' case, to actually literally lay down his life as the ultimate sacrifice that you and I could be forgiven of our sin. It's Christmas. There's a lot going on, but it's such an important moment to reflect And I want to challenge you personally. Jesus stepped into our story 2,000 years ago. He stepped into the human story in a human way. He changed the course of history. He established a new covenant between God and man. He stepped into our story. But I would say to you, he also wants to step into your story, your life, your journey. He has so much for us. He said in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 29, come to me. How many people in this world do you guys need to hear these words, whether it's you or people around you, that Jesus would say to us, come to me. All who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. I don't know about you, but I love those words. I need those words. The world needs those words. This period of time needs those words. A time of rest. You know what a yoke is, right? You know, you put it on the animal to pull the cart or the plow, and it'd be heavy and being full of labor, uh, laborious work. And Jesus says, take my yoke. It's not, it's not that heavy. Why is it not heavy? Because sometimes I question this and I go, I don't know, life feels heavy to me. And yet I realize if I had to earn my salvation, this would be very, very, very heavy. But I know where I stand with God. With, for all the mistakes that I've made and all the sin in my life, I know where I stand with God, and therefore I can be at peace. I can be at rest, even though I've messed up, even though I've sinned. His yoke is easy. His burden is light, and he's inviting all of us to that kind of relationship with him, that kind of understanding of who he is. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Maybe you've seen the paintings or statues or there's lots of art associated with this verse of Jesus knocking on a door, right? Sometimes we talk about that like it's your heart. Jesus knocking on the door of your heart. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I, I didn't write this, you guys. Jesus said this. I stand at the door and I knock. I'm asking you to open the door for me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I have a gift for you. I bring you good news of great joy. Peace on earth. Peace for you. If you want to realize, if you, if you want to come to a point where you really understand and believe and can say, He is the God of hope, like we see in Romans 13, 15, 13. The God of hope. Is that who He really is to me? How can I know that? How can I realize that? How could I possibly have an overflowing hope and be filled with joy and peace regardless of these circumstances? We've got to recognize this child that we celebrate tomorrow morning. We've got to recognize what he actually did for you and I. We have to celebrate him as both Messiah and Lord a powerful and authoritative king and judge who, we do, who all honor and respect is due to and at the same time loves you intensely, so intensely that he died for you. He's both those things, Messiah and Lord. And he knocks on the door of our lives and that's who he wants to be for us. I've had many times in my life where I realize I'm the king of my life. And I have to get off that throne and go, no, Jesus, you're the king. Your way, your word, your destiny, your calling, those kinds of things. He wants to transform you. This gospel, this good news, it has transformational power. When you invite God to be Lord of your life and you walk that journey with him closely in his ways, 
understanding his word, understanding who he is, in prayer with him, honoring him, it transforms your life. How many times do we try and do things to transform ourselves? Hey, we got New Year's resolutions right around the corner. We're going to be trying to transform ourselves. But there's nothing like the good news and the power that that angel said to those shepherds that day. Today I bring you good news. Your Savior has been born. Powerful. Amazing. Opening the door to Jesus is not a complicated process. It doesn't take a magical prayer. There isn't a rite of passage that you have to go through. Scripture says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, then you will be saved. So what I tell people, confess to him your belief in him. It's that simple. If you believe it, tell him. He can hear your every word and thought. Let him know. Maybe dust off your old Bible. See what it has to say. See how God speaks to you through his word. Maybe your Bible's so old you need to go get a new one. I would love to help you pick out a new Bible. That'd be so much fun to me. Maybe visit with some of your Christian friends and talk about that. Hey, I I, want to walk closer with Jesus. I want to understand his way more. I need that transformational power in my life. I can't transform myself. I need that forgiveness. I need that good news. I need the Holy Spirit with me guiding me. Maybe get connected in a local church, wherever you're from. Get connected with the mission, because we're on a mission. Jesus sent us on a mission. When he ascended into heaven, he said, go and make disciples of all nations. We're all on mission in our own way. I'm going to take a moment here and pray for us before we dismiss. And as I'm praying, if you agree with me, then agree with me in your heart. So it's as simple as, yeah, Lord, I agree with what JR is praying right now. So it's not just about me praying something or hearing the words from my mouth, but you pray too with me as I pray. And let God work on you. If he's knocking on the door of your heart, let him in. Let him in. It'll be the best decision you ever made in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the great gift you have given us. Something we could never deserve or earn and yet forgives our sins and gives us eternal life. Transforms our lives even now. Guides our steps in the decisions that we make and the way we choose to go in our lives. God, I pray right now for everybody in this room, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be stirring in their hearts drawing them closer to you and wherever they are, Lord, as individuals. We're all in different places in life. But God, I pray that you'd be tugging on their heartstrings and reminding them of your love, reminding them of the good news, reminding each one of us of how much you love us. And Father, I, I, I just ask, Lord, be with me. Be with me, Lord. Be the Lord in my life. Be my Messiah. I have to pray that almost every day. God, you are the king. I am not. You are the Savior. I am not. I could never do it. But with you, we can do anything. So God, I invite you to work in all of us as we celebrate you tonight and tomorrow. God, as we open gifts and have great meals, I pray that we would be reminded of how good you really are with what you've done, what you've given us, and what you've entrusted us with. 
I pray you bless each family here today, each individual. I pray for their souls, each one of them, Lord, that you'd be bringing comfort and peace and strength and joy as we remember the amazing things you've done for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.